Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. How's it going, folks? Yo, yo, yiggity, yo. What's going on? (laughs) Where did that come from? It just came from the very bowels of my soul, deep, deep down (laughs) in the anal cavities of my soul. I, I reached deep within myself, within the crevasses of my soul, and I found that. That's what I found deep in there. I guess I'm just wondering if you've ever heard anyone else say, yo, yo, yiggity, yo. I can almost guarantee that I haven't. Okay. I'm yeah. very confident I think that it's that a is first not for a me thing. Too. Yeah. 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 So that just goes to show when... We do one of the these episodes this late at night. Just all kinds of mayhem can occur. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what 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 I'm going to say. Am I just going to give out my social security number? It's quite a possibility. The Am I going to start dam that typically holds back <laughs> the darkest recesses of your soul? It's just uh, malfunctioning at this time of night. So exactly. little little chunks of stuff from the deepest recesses of your anal cavity of your soul are spewing yeah. forth slowly little exactly. by little yeah little bits of soul chunks are coming out from my cavities exactly mm-hmm. yep and <laughs> and uh quite frankly it, it should give you a little bit of insight into how this podcast works it's not too different from uh you know loading up on barbiturates and just seeing <laughs> what happens a lot of the times we're just so tired or it's just so late that we're just uh, we're on the verge of madness when we do this. So for all I know, it sounds normal to me right now. But for all I know, if I was to ever sit through these podcast episodes someday and like just listen to it, listen to every episode that has occurred over the course of a year, what I could be witnessing is just the slow maddening of my mind. Mm-hmm. You can hear in the breakdown. Form. Yeah, it'll be like the, the mental breakdown of a podcaster over the course of a year. And you'll see how exactly. at the beginning of the year when you were full of energy and full of life, you sound like a regular human being. And then as time yeah. progressed, you slowly descended into this dark place where, as you said, things were coming out of your anal cavities of your soul (laughs) exactly so you know if we ever need to go to court this is evidence of something i don't know what but it's evidence of something you can plead insanity dude awesome awesome if you if you've committed a crime you can (laughs) use this podcast as evidence that you've slowly lost your mind over time and anybody man say that would a sane man think to say that (laughs) exactly man how many criminals have ever used the podcast defense in a court of law? Exactly. I bet I bet you could be the first one, man. Most people can't wait for their first marriage. I can't wait for my first divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I I just want to I want to I can't wait till we're in court and I just play these episodes for them just so they can be like, okay. Look, I was he, never he's stable not responsible to begin with. for himself. Yeah, exactly. He's not responsible for what he did. Everything uh, that we say on this podcast, we are not responsible for anything that we say. Exactly. 
In fact, the entire premise of this podcast, you might be thinking it's to talk about comics, but really it's just to catalog our uh, a record of our slow madness. (laughs) 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 But anyways, I digress. Uh, last week we discussed the the life and times of Stanley in uh, in his biography, and uh, as promised, this week we decided to follow the reverse flip side of the coin by following one of the other characters in their drama, which was which is the story of Jack Kirby, where. Uh, this week we decided to discuss Jack Kirby, the epic life of the king of comics. Uh, Drew, do you mind giving our good fine listeners a little bit of the information? Don't mind at all. So Jack Kirby, the epic life of the king of comics is written, drawn, colored, and lettered by Tom Scioli with color assists by Bill Crabtree. It was published in 2020 by 10 speed press. And a little bit of information about Tom Scholey is that he is an artist who kind of built his career uh, being known for his, uh, or at least I would say his, he built his comics reputation on being a Kirby practitioner. Uh, yeah. A lot of his work uh, visually and even in terms of the story content is very reminiscent of Kirby. I'm not going to say he's definitely not a ripoff or anything, but you can tell that he was inspired by Kirby. Homage. And yeah, and, yeah. He, and he he just loves Kirby. And yeah. uh, I think maybe some of his early work looks closer and closer, closer to Kirby's style. But yeah. as his, as time progressed, I, I think he's developed uh, a style that definitely hints at Kirby or not. Well, more than hints, it it's definitely clearly reminiscent of Kirby and done yeah. in the Kirby tradition, but yeah. it's also recognizably his own style as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's he's like a, guy... a lot of those. No, go ahead, go ahead. It's like I was gonna say, it's like a lot of those um, the old masters, the 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 artists who who went on to kind of found their own school the of of art style and. You know, when that happens, you have a lot of students that practice under under them, and uh, what they end up doing is they advance the art form by initially they their entire purpose is to you know continue to produce art in the vein of these people that they are. Um, that they're uh, under the tutelage of, right? But then over time, you know, people, as they grow and progress, what ends up happening is they they end up taking um, the art either to the next level or, you know, in some cases they stay the same. You know, if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. But, you know, the the interesting thing is when uh, you, you find artists who are able to find new and interesting ways of showing uh different perspectives on that same art style you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah Sorry, i didn't mean to cut you off yeah tom shirley's someone who 
definitely embodies what you described. I think I don't think he's ashamed of his love for Kirby either. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty obvious that he loves the, uh, Kirby's work and yeah, his his own style is basically a tribute to one of the most, if not the most important artist in American comics history. Yeah. Yeah. And I first discovered Tom Scholey's work in the mid-2000s when he drew Godland, which was a comic that he did with Joe Casey. And that comic is definitely a love letter to Kirby, the cosmic side of Kirby. It's it's uh, very fitting uh, that Godland demonstrated how Tom Scholey kind of mastered how to do a Kirby pastiche. It was just something that I, th- I think compared to the other stuff I was reading in the mid 2000s, even though Scholey was kind of doing this older style or style influenced by an older artist. Yeah. It just looked fresh compared to everything else that was coming out in like 2005, 2006, you know, like yeah. you didn't have, yeah. A whole lot of other people who were loud and proud about homaging Silver Age style of art, you know? Yeah. I well, think that's, the in- that's what stood out. Right, right. I was going to say that's the interesting thing about art, though, is that art kind of comes and goes in waves. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when when Kirby was first doing Kirby, you know, his his was the fresh, hot style. And... They even talk about that in the book a little bit where there's a period of time where um, even other DC, uh, even the the competition was trying to ape his his style, you know, and that's mm-hmm. how, you know, he became kind of the the standard in this period of time. Yeah. But, you know, when when things go on for a really long time, what ends up happening is new voices and new styles come in and they uh i don't know what the word is what supplicate overtake i don't know supplant supplant they end up supplanting uh this old style as it becomes you know uh what's the term as as it becomes kind of old old older (laughs) yeah exactly older or as 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 people become accustomed to seeing it and but the funny thing is, uh, after a, a period of time where all this new stuff comes out and all, all these new things happen, um, sometimes you have this wave that goes back to its roots, you know? Especially so because you, people who grew up reading that older stuff end up becoming professionals themselves, and you can see how that older stuff influenced their stuff, yeah, which is now current. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's kind of why we're seeing this resurgence of awful 90s art yeah if if you look at what's going on in comics right now and if you were to extrapolate on what we were on what we're seeing in, in the comics uh era right now it's it's essentially we're essentially in the period of time where the worst period of comics in our opinion has had a resurgence because it's went away for for a long enough time and 
Yeah. Apparently, there were enough people who loved those comics that it gave it enough power to 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 come back to make a resurgence. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's it's a very interesting boom bust cycle, and I'm sure to them <laughs> or to to certain people, they think it's a great time to be alive. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I can't say that. I personally feel that way. In fact, mm-hmm. I definitely don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I spate upon them. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the only other thing I, I really know about Tom Scioli is, is that he occasionally appears on the cartoonist Fabe channel on YouTube. I guess yeah. he also lives in, in Pittsburgh or in that area, so he's on the show with Jim Rugg and Ed Piscor every so often when they dissect some of their favorite comics or just interesting comics that are worth talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you can check him out on some of those videos as well as uh, look for his other comics. I think his other recent comic of note was Fantastic Four Grand Design. I haven't read that one yet, haven't gotten my hands on it, but uh, it's certainly on my radar. Yeah. And again, another you know, dedication to Kirby right there. So having read his Jack Kirby bio comic, it's a graphic novel form format, uh, basically just under 200 pages. Uh, Let me ask you, Albert, what are your general thoughts of Jack Kirby, the epic life of the King of Comics? I think... I think in terms of my expectations, uh, knowing what I know of Shioli's art, I was expecting uh, something kind of louder and grander, because uh, that's just what I expect of his art style. But what I've never seen him draw a biography, though. We've only seen yeah, him draw exactly. fantastic exactly. stuff. Exactly. So it's interesting to see him draw something that's pretty subdued by comparison to what I'm accustomed to seeing from him. Yeah, and grounded and realistic. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's that isn't to say that it's bad. I think it's it's quite good uh just seeing it that uh portrayed that way, you know. It's mm-hmm. definitely a stylistic choice on his part not to uh just bombard us with imagery uh, and just keep it focused on the story um i think it's pretty well paced it's engaging and uh it's something that i was able to continuously read and absorb as i kept going you know even though at least for a comic it's i thought it was pretty dense and um you know there's a, a decently high word count and again, there isn't like a lot of fantastical art, but the information and the telling of it is just interesting enough and engaging enough for me that I was I was pretty all in on the book uh, after having read it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Mm-hmm. General thoughts. First of all, I'd, I'd have to say that any biography about Jack Kirby would have to be ambitious just by the nature of it, because Jack Kirby did a whole lot of stuff in comics and heck even just his his life outside of comics was 
was a uh, you know a lot too. I I didn't even know. I knew he served in World War II, but I I didn't really know too much about it. But just the fact that this book gives us a pretty significant uh, portion about that era of his life. Yeah, I, I felt like that gave me an even greater respect for Jack Kirby, not just as yeah. a comics creator, but as a man, you know, as somebody yeah. who was part of that History. generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would also say Tom Scioli wisely keeps his biocomic moving along. He never lingers too long in any specific era or on any specific anecdote. He also decided to use the literary device of first-person narration from Kirby's point of view. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, the very opening of the book, he points that out, you know, just to call a little attention to it, that that it's uh, a biography where he uses that artistic choice to tell the story of Kirby. And yeah. by the way, this this biography isn't authorized by the Kirby estate or Marvel or DC or anybody. It, it's just Tom Shirley doing a bunch of research on his own with all the sources that he could obtain to yeah. create the story, yeah. to create yeah. the, the story of Kirby's life. But I think... Yeah. The downside of telling the story from Kirby's point of view is that, unfortunately, it often means we don't get to go into too much detail about certain events. Uh, and and with a couple of, of exceptions, we don't get to hear the other side of some of those events. However, the benefit of that trade is that, like you said, the story does move briskly along. The pacing is well done and it holds the reader's attention, even if there are additional questions raised. It it almost doesn't matter so much because you're just swept along in this in this journey. Mm. And Sholi mostly sticks to a six-panel grid. There are a couple of exceptions from what I can recall, but for the most part, he sticks to a six-panel grid. And that yeah. definitely gives the book a certain rhythm. Like you just see a little scene and some text to describe what's going on and like most scenes don't take up more than a couple of panels and then so you might some pages have like multiple scenes uh within the six panels on on that on the page yeah overall i mean oh go ahead yeah i was gonna say that in regards to that six panel layout like it it does feel like a lot of the book is I guess the only way I can describe it is talking heads or, you know, just these discussion, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is scenes of Jack Kirby talking with people, you know? So, yeah. But, but again, it's, it's well done enough where by the end of it, uh, like I, I really do feel like I absorbed a lot of information and I was pretty caught up in the story that he was trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were we going to say? Oh, just overall, I liked it as a comic, and I think it's definitely an effective overview of Jack Kirby's life. Certainly, if you don't know too much about Kirby, then this is going to be even more powerful than it is. Maybe for readers who are already familiar with Jack Kirby's life, because, you know, there are people who, who just are devotees of Jack Kirby, right? And, you know, there's there's like a whole magazine 
dedicated to his work and his all the things that he did um there are other books written about him so yeah. th- there's a lot of, there's plenty of material out there and i think if you're already pretty familiar with that stuff then maybe maybe you won't really learn too much from reading this book but i i do think it's a good introduction to jack kirby and even if you do know all this stuff already it's still a good comic just as a piece of work on its own in its own right you know right right yeah yeah another interesting choice i wanted to bring up before we get too deep into it is that shioli draws this sort of anime looking kirby yeah it's kind of <laughs> strange because when the book starts off with young jack kirby as a kid growing up he looks pretty much the same as everybody else is drawn like it's a pretty grounded style but uh as he gets older the way that Shirley draws him he's kind of super deformed and he has these big old anime eyes yeah i don't yeah. i'm not sure if i ever really grew to like that choice but it's it's definitely an interesting choice and i guess it <laughs> i guess the eyes do lend an extra layer of expressiveness to the man but yeah, yeah it, it is just kind of unusual because everybody else is depicted in a pretty realistic style but jack kirby he's always this really short figure with a big head and really gigantic anime eyes yeah i'm, I'm yeah. not exactly sure why sholi decided to, to do that uh and i yeah i mean i don't i don't know if i like it but i won't say that i hate it or anything either it's just to me it's just an interesting and unusual choice that maybe maybe i have to sit on it a while and and you know think about it next week to see if uh my thoughts on that choice have changed at all yeah it's yeah, you're right. It's interesting because the way that he draws everybody else, they're it it almost makes it look like everybody else just has beady little eyes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's drawn in a fairly realistic style, and he's the only one who looks like a cartoon character walking around. Like it's almost like he he looks like a little kid, uh, even right. when he's an older guy, talking to all these tall adults. <laughs> right. Even though he's well, just, you know, a nor- he's not treated as anyone who looks different in the within the pages of the story. He just he's just drawn differently. Right, right. I was gonna say that I could offer two possibilities. Um, you know, take with it what you will. But one 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 thought that I did have was if you look at the real Jack Kirby, he He's a pretty interesting looking old guy. I'm not saying that he's deformed or anything, but he he's a guy whose whose look has quite a bit of character. Um I guess his eyes do jump out at me when I think of what the what what my image of him looks like in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um usually what what jumps out at me is that he's got these giant bushy eyebrows these really like powerful eyebrows you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. but i guess that just kind of ties into the idea 
or, or to the image of his eyes. Um, so maybe that's something, uh, you know, it just this idea that he's drawn in a different way because, you know, one, he is the main character and two, he, he was a pretty, uh, he had an interesting look, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that I'd probably, uh, put out there is, well, maybe it's the idea that Jack Kirby being, you know, the 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 wellspring of ideas for you know the modern mythology of of that that we all uh just consume right mm-hmm. uh maybe it's Shioli's way of you know just sh- uh of showing him as just this wide-eyed like character that's just full of imagination and wonder and you know and mm-hmm. and it's just idea that he always retains that uh well into his adulthood until the end of his life you know yeah and there is one panel or i guess two panels near the end of the book yeah where i feel like it's sort of addressed because uh you get to there's this scene where Kirby himself looks at himself in the mirror. And on one side, you have him the way that he's drawn uh, throughout the book with the big old eyes. And then in the mirror, he looks like a more realistic version of himself. So, and, and the text in that panel is how he's commenting on how he, he wasn't a young man anymore. I'll just read it. He says, I wasn't a young man anymore. I wasn't even a middle-aged man anymore. Comics is a young man's game. The kids were doing their thing. Did I have anything to say that the kids wanted to hear? And then, uh, yeah, and the image that accompanies that panel is the one where he's looking at himself in the mirror, but in the mirror, the image of him is the realistic version. Yeah. So it's like a little older. And that's on page 170. Yeah, it almost feels like it's if if Shioli's building this image of Jack Kirby as this kind of timeless munchkin or magical imp-like creature or whatever, uh, it almost feels like in that one brief moment, it's a peek behind the curtain, right? Because mm-hmm. you get to see him as he is or as he was. And, uh, and like the text just talking about him as, you know, just... Uh, him referring to himself as this old man and just how, you know, he's given all he's got and, but unfortunately his body just can't take much more, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's another reason why we have a special affinity for this book because it's a story about an old man and we love our old man stories. Definitely, man. I want to become an old man one day. I don't know about that, but <laughs> you don't. Uh, I don't ever want to become a decrepit old man. <laughs> I would like to be preserved on some level. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
I guess you could say that my best years behind are behind me, but I've lived those years, and they certainly weren't very good years. <laughs> I'm hard yeah. pressed to say that they're my quote unquote best years. <laughs> so you're saying that there's a good chance the longer you live, the better your life will become. Oh no, there is no chance of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen the horizon, and it is two inches from my face. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. That is grim. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what this podcast is for. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me, so, Albert. Before yeah. we go too deep into the life story of Jack Kirby, I want to know what your first experience with Jack Kirby was. Yeah. So the thing about Jack Kirby for me is. He always felt like someone that was pretty far removed from the comics that I read, you know? Uh, In general, or as a kid? As a kid, and... Yeah, as a kid, and as someone who grew up reading a lot of what was current at the time. Like, yeah, even by then, uh, Kirby was... I don't think he was producing nearly as much, if anything, at at that point in his life. So late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, you definitely saw his stuff in reprints, and um, in terms of the stories that are foundational to the Marvel universe, they were stories that I was aware of. But well, I guess the book sort of addresses addresses uh the issue here which was as a kid i grew up knowing these stories but i didn't i didn't really ever think of who was behind them and so yeah um we've talked about this in the past but the fact that we were constantly always seeing stan lee on on everything that just kind of that my child brain just kind of stopped there i was like oh okay that's it that and and i didn't really think too far beyond that um and so for me jack kirby was I think I was aware enough of him to know that, you know, he worked on these things, but I didn't really appreciate him, you know? And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I got much older and, uh, you know, and, and I was able to uh, make the associ- association between his work and his contribution and just every story that i've ever read coming out of marvel and a lot of the stories that i've read coming out of dc in some way came back to stuff that he created you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah and it's and in talking about it that way it it makes me think of this biography and just how we read it and it almost feels like it's uh it, you remember that movie Forrest Gump? It it kind of feels like it's it's that, you know, in the sense that he just lived his life, but so much of what he did just ended up being something important somewhere down the line, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, in that moment in time, whatever he was doing might have just seemed like, you know, just pay-by-page rate work at the time, right? 
But, but it reverberated into the future. Exactly. And when you step back and look at his career as a whole, you you can't help but be in awe of the cumulative effect of everything that he's done. Yeah. So, you know, I, I yeah, that, that all that to say that I wasn't really too aware of Jack Kirby. Um, you know, maybe I, I, I knew he was an artist uh, that worked on on uh, that who was associated with these books, but I never really like thought about what that actually meant, or uh, or really like uh, contemplated the the weight of of what that meant, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you didn't yeah, really. So it sounds like you didn't really uh pay too much close attention to him or his work when you were a kid growing up in the late 80s and early 90s reading comics but do you remember what your first jack kirby comic was that you ever ended up reading even like whatever stage of life you were in eesh that is uh oh man that's that's it's a tough question. <laughs> that is a tough question to answer. Like, cause I'm really thinking about it. And I, I think, I think the biggest association that I have with Jack Kirby at this point is, is really just the stuff that we've learned in, in, in the modern, uh, in the modern era, you know, just listening to a podcast and like conversations on, on the subject of comics and, the history of comics and just seeing the impact of his work. Like that's, that's probably the stuff that lingers with me now more than ever. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've uh, had a chance to read too much of his comics still, uh, which is a shame because like they're more available now than ever. Uh, but it's definitely on my list of things to read. Um, I, I will say that even though I can't really come up with any Kirby comic that I've read. Well, well Fantastic you know Four, that was on our yeah, you're Marvel right. list. You're right. I read the Fantastic Four. And so there's that. But I was going to say, like, for the longest time, a lot of the stuff that I did read was just stuff that was connected to to stuff that he created so you know things like the new gods and you know even though i never read his new god stuff like dc was constantly pumping out stuff with dark side you know mm-hmm. to the point where it, it's it's a copy of a copy of a copy of uh the the character that jack kirby ultimately created way back when but mm-hmm. that context is lost over time, and it's it's yeah, it's unfortunate. But but yeah, um, they yeah, I read that Fantastic Four that he did. That's that's probably the the freshest thing that I can think of. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Drew? What are your thoughts on Kirby and? Like what? What do you can you recall the first time you ever came across his work and that he, the first time that he impacted himself on you or imprinted himself on on you or or on your memory? 
so I can't remember the first Kirby comic I read, but oh. as a kid, I definitely knew who he was just because I was, I don't know, maybe this is just something we, that was just me as a kid, but when I made comics a hobby, I was pretty monomaniacal about it. You know how like little kids, when they have something that they're fascinated by, they can just devote a ton of attention to uh, to learning everything there is about it. Like yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for a little while, it was like Ninja Turtles for me. And then maybe uh, before that, it was Transformers. And, I, you know, like my whole life would just revolve around that one thing that I enjoyed. And when I, when I got into comics, uh, certainly by the time I was like nine or 10 years old, I was, I would go to the bookstore with my dad and, uh, head straight to the spinner rack and, and just look at comics but in addition to that there were magazines uh, about comics you know like there was it wasn't just wizard but uh there was i think it was called comics buyer's guide or something something like that cbg uh-huh, uh-huh. and there was another one called hero illustrated uh i don't think it's a like it's it definitely didn't last very long compared to something like wizard but i remember uh just reading magazines about comics just so i could learn everything that i could learn about comics so yeah his name would constantly pop up there and and i i learned who he was and stuff uh but at you know at that time he wasn't really uh making comics anymore he was uh, again up in years and stuff and as we read in the book, uh, you know, he had some health problems that kind of made it uh, difficult, if not uh, impossible, for him to really draw any comics completely by himself the way that he used to. Mm. So there weren't any new comics of his that that I was uh, aware of, other than like those short-lived Tops comics, and I don't. And I don't even think all of those were truly by him, you know, like there was just his ideas, but other someone else was like working on them. Yeah. Yeah. But like definitely knew his name. But I, I think the one thing and this is going to sound strange, but the one thing that really left an imprint on me was uh, <laughs> Spawn Batman, you know, the, the crossover <laughs> Frank okay. Miller and Todd McFarlane. <laughs> I'm I'm. You've piqued my curiosity. I want to see where this goes. Did you have a copy of that comic? Uh, I don't think I did. I mean, I was aware of it, but it wasn't something... Even then, it wasn't really something that I was super uh, high on or super interested in getting. Yeah, I was a dumb kid, so I was super high on that. (laughs) (laughs) I was 11, man. But that that comic came out in 1994, and... And that was uh, the year that Jack Kirby died in the comic. I think on the inside, it was either the inside front or back cover. There there was a dedication to him. And, and it had a, a photo of Jack Kirby. I think that was pretty, that's, that's definitely the thing that made me think of him. Uh, like anytime when I was a kid, I would think about here, Jack Kirby, I would think of that that picture of him in the book in, in that spawn Batman comic. And it, it, it was, uh, something about it, I guess, because 
Frank Miller and Todd McFarlane were such big names to see that those were the that Jack Kirby was the guy that they looked up to and and paid respect to. It it told me something that you know Jack Kirby was a special person, you know, and yeah. Uh, it, it's basically like if if the guys that that you're following at that time really like somebody else, well, you want to know more about that person that they followed. And e- even though that was a situation where they had that tribute for him or dedication uh, because he had just passed, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it it it's always just stayed in my mind. And that combined yes. with all the comic magazines that I would read. Uh, you know, you know, and they would always talk about his work and his influence and the stuff that all the characters and stuff that he created had a, yeah. had a pretty good. Uh, or I had a picture of him in my mind, you know, like an image or idea of of his influence. But as far yeah. as uh, which of his comics did I did I read? Like I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I read old reprints of his stuff when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I, I definitely had, uh, those, those reprints of some of the famous number ones that he did. Uh, I don't know right, if you remember right. those, but those were the ones that came out in the early '90s, and they had the, the, the silver gray border or the silver border. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, they were yeah. like Marvel Masterworks reprints or something. Yeah. I, I forget the name of them or what. They were what like they were single page them. Marvel Masterworks, isn't? Uh, I think. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. But I I had quite a few of those. Like I had the had the X Men number one. I had Hulk number one. Uh, Fantastic Four number one. Yeah, so the both... only one I had of that was the the Amazing Spider Man one, where Spider Man fights the Fantastic Four. That yeah, was the only yeah. one I had as a kid. <laughs> yeah, and that was Ditko. Yeah. So, yeah, I had that one too. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty sure it was those reprints that were my first exposure to actually reading Kirby comics. And yeah. I, I think as a kid, I, I don't think I appreciated them as much just because, you know, I was a dumb kid. And it's like, even as a kid, you could tell reading those, they were older comics. Mm. And, they, you know, the style of the art was different from what I was accustomed to growing up yeah. and all the stuff that was uh contemporary at the time yeah uh, this i don't ain't think i T-Mac. appreciated it as much yeah it ain't t-mac dude it, everything's <laughs> not over rendered people's kicks yeah. aren't like three stories long and how come and, this guy doesn't have 50 veins coming out of his arm and neck <laughs> yeah 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 and and how how come uh he doesn't have a, a 90 foot long chain hanging down around his waist that he can how use come to, mary jane's boobs are normal sized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not what a real stuff. woman looks like. <laughs> her waist should be about the size of a Coke can. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Actually, think... listen. Go ahead. Huh? Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, finish your thought, dude. I was going to say that I think the first Kirby comic that I actually sat down to read as an adult and, you know, like dedicate my full attention to was probably his fourth world comics. Because when I was in, I was either in college or maybe a little bit after, uh, after college, I bought 
a bunch of uh or about like pretty much his entire run uh, in reprints when dc had done these black and white reprints of his fourth world comics in trade paperbacks i think his jimmy olsen run was in color for some reason but all the other stuff uh forever people the new gods and mr miracle those were all in black and white but i ended up buying all of those i read all read all of them and yeah i was completely engrossed in them love those comics and and that's what really made me have you know a direct appreciation for his actual work you know as opposed to just appreciating him for his contributions i was like at that point i was like dude these comics are better than comics that are made today you know (laughs) yeah yeah i hear you i hear you what were you about to say earlier uh just reminiscing on the story that you told about, you know, that that impact, that that Batman Spawn comic that impacted you or, or like really left an impression on on you in terms mm-hmm. of who Jack Kirby was uh, in relation to the rest of the comics world. Um, I was going to tell a story and it's it's something that I you I actually ended up seeing in the book. So it mm-hmm. it was kind of nice to see it uh portrayed on on uh in the comic. Uh but I think the one moment that really sticks out in my memory of Jack Kirby is and, and it's it's kind of sad to say this, but it's it was a moment from Superman the animated series mm. and uh mm-hmm. it's it's the episode where Darkseid it was like a two-part episode about Darkseid coming to Earth and yep basically like attacking the Earth and trying to conquer it and in the end Superman's all messed up but you know him and the human uh the humans of Metropolis they rise up and uh, there's this character who who's who who leads the humans in in resisting. He's he's essentially the loudest voice out of all of them. He's the first one to step up and tell Darkseid that no matter what, he'll ne- never take Earth because they'll resist him to the very end. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Dan Turpin is he was based on Jack Kirby, so uh, his look was very reminiscent of Kirby, and his behavior and mannerisms and voice i imagine were kirby-esque you know Mm -hmm. Mm because he was built as he was designed as a tribute to to jack kirby you know yeah and and the thing that really caught me about this episode was at the very end of it you Mm -hmm. know superman repels the attack and the new gods show up and as a result dark side is forced to to leave and just as he's uh he's slipping away just as he he's leaving as his forces are retreating from the battlefield dark side looks back and you know basically as just one final act of cruelty before he leaves the planet he kills dan turpin on the spot you know mm-hmm. and he just kind of gives this really cold cold-hearted smile before he he disappears behind his boom tube and Superman just goes after him, <clears throat> but he misses out before he can catch uh, Darkseid. 
And it's just this really, like, powerful ending because Superman just goes crazy and he just starts smashing, like, this giant tank that was left over from the attack. And when it's all over, he's just, you know, he's just... He's just kind of in a pile, just uh, just powerless mm-hmm. to undo any of the things that have just happened. And yeah. the episode ends with uh, this funeral, this really like moving funeral scene where uh, they're singing in Hebrew, I believe. Uh, I, I don't I don't know what the song is, but I, I imagine it's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, something that befits the situation. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's it's some sort of funeral. uh song uh with with you know uh significance right and uh oh and the episode ends with superman standing at the tombstone of dan mm-hmm. turpin and he goes i i forget exactly what he says but it's something along I think the he lines says of, goodbye old friend yeah like everyone thought that the world needed a superman but when what they really needed was just a good man or yeah, something like that yeah you know, it was just this really touching ending. And I was in high school when I saw this. But, you know, to see that something like that on a cartoon, like that really stuck with me. And like to, it, it, it was a cartoon that was made around the time of Jack Kirby's death, because at the very end of it, there's uh, an end a note dedication. that says, yeah, a dedication to, to Jack Kirby. And that was the thing that really solidified or or that really always stuck in my mind about jack kirby um that was the moment where like i i came to understand that there was something about him that was important to comics the Mm -hmm. comics community as a whole you know yeah yeah totally yeah that was that was a definitely a memorable moment of my youth also yeah yeah and that was uh a scene that was posted very briefly at the end of uh the comic and as i was looking you know when i when i was reading it just to see that scene pop up it was a really pleasant surprise you know it 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 yeah sort of uh reignited certain memories and feelings in me that i same here that i felt in that moment when i first saw that scene you know same here seeing tom shioli draw that dan turpin scene it it did for some reason, man, it, it did kind of make me emotional a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It took me back to that place and tapped into these specific emotions I had. Yeah. About Jack Kirby and and that episode of the cartoon. And it, it's, yeah, it was a really, a really great moment. Yeah. yeah. Like, Dan Turpin was a character that Kirby created back in his New Gods comics. And then for him to for that character to be basically modeled on Jack Kirby in the cartoon. And that that's, that's pretty clever. Like that's a, it's a pretty tell, loving homage. Yeah. Like Bruce, Tim yeah. and, and those guys, you know, they might have done most of their work in animation, but they clearly had a love for Jack Kirby as well. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember when I first saw it on like a Saturday morning, it was something that I was just so in awe of that I had to wait until I think what I ended up doing was I would 
for for a couple of weeks after that, I would record on VHS every morning uh, until that episode popped back up again. And then when I finally caught it, I was able to get the the two parter, and I I had that on video, and I would just watch that over and over again. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Man, I wonder how yeah. many people listening to this have no idea what you just described. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Recording right? <laughs> something on TV using a VHS tape player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are just yeah, there's just so many words and uh, 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 actions that I just described and technologies there that are just foreign to them at this point. <laughs> now you can just go on YouTube and and do a search for it. <laughs> yeah, or you can just go to HBO Max and just watch the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man, did you want to get into the book a little bit? We can discuss just kind of the the timeline in brief. Yeah, yeah, let's do it, man. Yeah, so the book uh, goes into his early life a little bit as we uh, see, you know, his family and his birth and just what it was like for Jack Kirby to grow up in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, the different experiences and um, conditions that he was surrounded by that he would eventually incorporate into his comic book storytelling. Yeah. Following that, uh, we learn about how he, he always had an affinity for, for drawing and, uh, for, I guess, fantastic, fantastical stories, you know? So it, it almost felt like he was made for comics, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then upon, uh, you know, growing up a little bit and uh, taking, deciding to become a full-time artist. At one point, he, we, we, we follow him as he enters the early years of comics, as he gets his first job, as he begins to work for a bunch of different companies. Um, you know, again, a, a lot of these are the uh, experiences that would eventually shape how he viewed comics, as well as uh, how he. Uh, told stories uh, you know just these were the formative experiences of his comics uh, drawing career and just the thing that would the the moments that would eventually lead him to becoming the Jack Kirby that we would ultimately recognize you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, following that we there's a period in the book that covers uh, his life in the war uh he goes off to world war ii as, don't, don't forget uh, how uh before he gets shipped off he uh meets rosalind and and you know they have their romance right, right, and right. get married you're right you're right so the exactly i mean you pretty much said all that right there but yeah, yeah there's he meets uh you know the woman that would be the love of his life as well as in many ways his partner uh, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she's often depicted as someone who has a lot of business acumen and just insight into just how people operate, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there, there were just a bunch of scenes where she talks to Jack about, um, you know, how he should interact with his working situations and yeah, she just really seems like a really sharp individual who picked up on things that he uh, unfortunately wasn't picking up because 
you know, he was a guy who, who was a great artist, but, you know, he was also He's kind of focused of on people. his... Yeah, yeah. And, he, and I think he was kind of focused on just the act of creation. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I, 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 well, he was focused on the act of creation, but a lot of it was also circumstances because, um, you know, over time, as he his family grew with Rosalind, uh, you know, he he ended up being in a position where he had to continue to work in order to provide for his family. So, it, unfortunately, he wasn't really in a position to make too many demands, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you can see that he he wasn't he wasn't a super proud person, you know. Like he was willing to humble he was himself. Humble. Yeah. He was very humble. Definitely yeah. willing to humble himself and even like something that, you know, a more prideful person might find humiliating to do, you know, to go yeah. back to to Stanley or whatever, you know. But like for yeah. him, it was like, I need to support my family. So, yeah, I have to do what I have to do, you know, <laughs> and yeah. you got to you got to respect that. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up Stan because that's kind of where we see the the friction between the two. Uh, it almost feels like it was just built into the cake because uh, Stan was a guy who was just naturally uh, boastful, I guess, you know? Like yeah. He, he was a guy who was about promotion. Um, I, I mean, it served him in his work as an editor because he was constantly promoting his books which was great for the books but you know if you take that too far yeah the worst possible place that you can take it in in the worst possible uh example of it is someone who is just a glory hound you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and jack kirby wasn't that at all he was he was a guy who believed in fairness. He was a book, a guy who believed that, you know, anyone's hard work deserved recognition, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, he expected that of the people around him. And unfortunately Stan wasn't like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it sucks to yeah. say the least yeah i wanted to touch a little bit on uh the point where you uh described up to in his in his life story which is when he gets shipped off to world war ii because yeah that's a significant chunk of the book is spent on his time in the war uh-huh. Uh-huh. i knew that he served in the army in the war but i i didn't know to what extent until i read this comic yeah and yeah so this part was actually pretty uh enlightening for me to to see that he he was in in heavy combat situations you know and yeah and you know he he killed enemy soldiers he killed enemy nazis uh because they were at war um yeah like there there was like honestly say i can honestly say I didn't know. I never knew just how many people Jack Kirby killed. 
Yeah. <laughs> true that. That is true, man. He killed so many people. <laughs> I remember this this other story about Jack Kirby, and I don't think it was I don't think it was in the book, in this comic. Maybe it was and I'm just not remembering, but I I remember hearing a story about how when he worked I think it was when he worked at Marvel, um, or maybe Maybe it was at a different company. I, I I really can't remember, but I just remember a story where uh, there were some people who were like, I guess they were either Nazi sympathizers or like, well, yeah, I guess they were, I guess that's the best way to describe them. Like Nazi sympathizers who went to the place where he was employed at the time and started uh-huh. talking crap or, you know, like saying stuff because they knew he was the guy who drew Captain America punching Hitler. Yeah, yeah. And and uh I I I heard that somehow uh like the secretary or somebody told him that there are these three guys down there uh you know and and they're they want to fight you uh so so don't go outside because you know you could you could get hurt. And yeah. like he just got so mad he rolled up his sleeves, went straight down there and those guys ended up running away. <laughs> yeah. I think that story was in the book. I remember that. Uh, Yeah, it was... I don't think it was quite in the era of Marvel. It might have been in the Timely period uh, Mm -hmm. where Timely Comics was was still going on because, yeah, he he created Captain America and um, he was getting all sorts of letters from not necessarily Nazi sympathizers. I think some of them were just Germans who, who felt like this was hate mongering against germans uh at least that's how <laughs> no I, that's how i remember it being uh yeah yeah kind of portrayed i, 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 I get Shiola that comics. that's how they thought of it at the time it's just yeah funny to think of it now in retrospect yeah <laughs> <laughs> why you gotta hate us germans huh <laughs> why you gotta Where's have Captain america punching out hitler <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's just another german what's the big deal <laughs> Look what he's doing for the economy, man. How can you do that? How you treat him like that, man? He making the trains, trains run on time. Our trains run on time. Now our trains are running on time. Why Why you deserve a punch in the face? Uh, Sorry, what were we talking about? <laughs> we were just talking about these... Uh, these proud Germans who wrote him letters about why he, about him being a hate monger and stirring the pot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that story was in there. She only uh, went over it a little. I I don't remember if. Uh... No, actually, I, I'm pretty sure that what ended up happening was what you described, which was he he Kirby ended up. I think this was before the war yeah no this was before he got sent off to war obviously but yeah like it just obviously showed how tough he was as a person and just how willing he was to like throw down when yeah. when he needed to you know yeah yeah i mean he grew up in in a ghetto he says uh and you see it depicted in in the story as in the in the biography as well like the rough and tumble nature of his childhood where yeah. the neighborhood kids were, I guess, like a gang or something, where they would fight kids from the other street, yeah, and and kids would get 
uh, hurt in in a way that I don't I don't think uh, kids it, you know in our era like it it definitely wasn't like that for me where you know like nobody ever got seriously hurt where you know you you, you would get knocked out and then the other kids would the kids who knocked you out would be like oh crap uh let's clean him up and just leave him in front of his his parents house so his mom doesn't get too worried <laughs> you know <laughs> let's leave her unconscious child in front of her home so that she can deal with it <laughs> yeah yeah let, let's let's wipe off the blood so it doesn't look as bad <laughs> but yeah it it sounds like that was the kind of uh the kind of life that he grew up and it it's a different generation but i remember reading uh harvey picard comic some american splendor and I, i think he had kind of this similar upbringing in i think in cleveland uh just getting into fights a lot as as a kid yeah so it huh yeah it it just something that uh jumped it out. It just seems me. like the past is just a bunch of kids fighting a bunch of other kids. <laughs> yeah, just chaos. <laughs> the interesting yeah. thing about uh, Kirby's experience, though, is he actually ended up transferring those experiences into some of his comics. So some yeah. of the characters that he created are reminiscent of those kid gangs that yeah. he used to run with. Like you, you have uh, Legion. Yeah, that's probably the most famous one, and. Yeah. There are some other ones that he created. Uh, What's like the, the name boy of that commandos? Kid gang in the Fantastic in the Fantastic Four? Uh, shoot, I I, I forget. But... It, it was named after the street. It was like the something street oh, the, gang. Oh, the the Yancey Street Gang. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Or Yancey Street Boys, something like that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's it's a theme that uh, or idea that he would bring up again and again. <laughs> yeah. 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 I it it kind of makes me think about if if there was a time machine that could bring uh you know Kirby in his prime to today right here right now and he was making comics right now it's kind of funny to think how like <laughs> modern audiences was, would respond to that you know it's like he he writes an awful lot of stories where these kids are just beating the crap out of each other <laughs> like this well, i don't those recognize are my favorite this kind of kids, man yeah. if ki- look if kids aren't beating each other up what good are what they what kind of childhood is that yeah exactly <laughs> if you didn't lose your finger uh in a sweatshop then you're that was no childhood at all <laughs> uh. Oh man, yeah. uh going back to the war though, there there was one thing, well there were a few things that jumped out at me, but one thing that I wanted to mention was this story about how uh they were in in a combat zone uh and they they encountered a tank battle and and he was a foot soldier, uh yeah. an infantry soldier and um they they were going through this uh or they they walked down this hill and then as they got closer to the sounds of battle they realized that uh there was a tank battle going on and as he looked at the the uh results of the carnage he saw this ring of german soldiers and it was just like the top halves of their bodies just their torsos 
and their you know their arms and and their heads but they were it all a, like yeah splayed out yeah. uh like a like a flower <laughs> he says um the way that it's described and and it says yeah. and he says uh when you're an artist you see these things patterns in the chaos and he just describes them uh as they were lying in a ring spread out like a flower that's yeah. uh that's a pretty crazy thing to envision but it's a corpse blossom <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah it's it's gruesome yeah. and she only doesn't really make it super gross but it's still a disturbing kind of sight and you could yeah. definitely see how uh an artist could think that way, you know. It yeah. Logically, it 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 rings true. And even the panel right before that, I'm looking on page 63. There's uh -huh. a, a the panel right before that is Kirby presumably looking at the these German bodies. And this is one of those instances where the the style of having the big old anime eyes kind of works in its favor, even though it's a grim situation. I think the way yeah. that those eyes are drawn, there's a lot of expression in them, and he genuinely does look haunted or shocked by what he's looking at. Yeah. You, the thing that struck me about that scene is it's a pretty grotesque thought, but even even though the idea of of just these bodies uh, just mangled by by this explosion right like the way mm -hmm. that he draws it there's still i don't know how to describe it but there's something almost elegant to it at the same time in spite of its hideousness you know spoken it's, like a true future serial killer yeah well i mean future present whatever um, <laughs> <laughs> currently active uh potential <laughs> What is time? What is time, Drew? What is time? Time is a flat circle. <laughs> Everything we've ever done or ever will do. I forget how the line goes, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that there like just the way that Shioli draws it, there's it's it's disturbing and disgusting, but there's also something about the the pattern that's really interesting, you know, in, mm -hmm. in that it, it it's the idea that even though that this this horrible thing has happened, um, that it would produce something as not perfect looking, but that I, I guess perfect is is one way to put it. You know, it, it's just like what a weird coincidence that something so awful would make this this almost perfect shape yeah you know? it's almost symmetrical yeah it, it's so weird but I, I i do remember reading that and i just kind of hovered over that for i lingered on that just kind of comprehending it and absorbing it trying to like make sense of it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah but there were quite a few other like war stories uh as we mentioned this this portion of uh of his life was covered in quite a bit of detail there was this one story about how jack kirby gets uh i think he walks into this one i forget what the location is but there were two two german soldiers there and they have this gun on him you know and 
they're just kind of mocking him for being shabbily dressed or whatever and uh they start talking about his mom you know and the i I forget i think the way he describes it was that he just kind of blacks out and next thing he knows he's he he lunges for one of their knives and he just stabs them to death in spite of the fact that they both have guns on him yeah it's actually three soldiers yeah he walks into it they're in a uh, he's on patrol uh, in a town and he, he saw yeah. a tavern and he thought maybe there'd be something to drink in there. So he walked in, Yeah. but a bunch of Nazis were, were in there. Um, I think the Nazis drew They're Germans. Why, why are you stirring things up? No, they're Nazis. They're definitely <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> uh, uh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Like what he, he's on his knees and as they're, talking to him in german with their gun guns trained on him like one guy has a gun trained on him and the others are just drinking their their beers or whatever kirby is looking at one of the soldier's boots because he's got a knife strap to it and then yeah it, it's pretty much he goes like for what it you, what you described yeah he yeah grabs the knife and then he doesn't remember what happened other than the fact that he was the only one alive and then yeah. the crazy thing is is that it says uh I gave I gave the knife to Roz as a present. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. That's that's uh that's incredible, man. Yeah. Like wow. I don't think I would have the survival instinct to black out and kill everyone around me. <laughs> or maybe I would. I don't know. I, I don't know what I do on my weekends. <laughs> <laughs> All you, all I know is what is that we record this podcast and then <laughs> the other six days of the week I have no idea what your yeah. activities are so I can maintain plausible <laughs> deniability. We re- we record this podcast and then I wake up and it's time to go to work and it's uh, Monday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that's a pretty crazy story that he was telling and uh yeah it's uh just an example of how how much of a what's is atypical the right word not typical yeah <laughs> uh mm-hmm. atypical life that he lived um what what was uh there was one other story that i was thinking of it escapes me at the moment but Oh, oh, okay. So the one other story that I remember was there's this portion in it where they were talking about how there was a commanding officer in his group, right? Mm-hmm. And the commanding officer finds out that Jack Kirby's an artist. And instead of taking this as an opportunity... Well, okay. Let me rephrase that. So this commanding officer takes this opportunity and he he enlists Jack Kirby who he's just found out is an artist to use his skill to like draw maps for him. So he sends him out as, uh, uh, to do surveillance to, 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 to do, uh, surveys of, recon. uh, recon, uh, to do recon. Right. And Jack Kirby does it and he comes back and he finds out that the commanding officer is pissed that he came back because, well, in short, 
his intention was, well, I don't know what his intention was, but what his expectation was, was that all these recon people that he sent out, he was expecting none of them to come back. Uh, oh, are you and he was, uh, talking about that scene with uh, General Patton? I think it was, yeah. Oh, wow. That did not put General Patton in a good light. <laughs> it did not, yeah. That's on yeah. page 63. It's right after the scene with the, with the corpse flower. Yeah. So, exactly. So, uh, it always... It, he talks about how it always left an impression on him, on, on, uh, on Patton, to the point where... I'm pretty sure he was pretty resentful of the guy. You know, the hero of the war, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be too. But it's interesting because it reminds me of the uh, Stan Lee story that they were telling about how during World War II, he didn't really see any action, but when they found out that he was a writer, what did they do with him? They conscripted him to write, you know, press and publicity to to rally people to the cause you know yeah like yeah just how different are these two stories pamphlets you know? yeah yeah it's 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 again like the the point for us to do a review of this comic uh you know after doing the stanley one was just to to on some level to to compare these two things and their two ex, uh, these two stories and their two experiences and these two men and just to see uh, like what was going on that shaped both of them to be the way that they were and uh it, it's crazy to think that Stan Lee like looked out in such a way whereas Jack with Jack Kirby they were like oh you're an artist here, go run into this minefield and draw it for us. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> yeah. Uh, but those are two wildly disparate experiences. Exactly, exactly. That that was something that uh caught my attention when as I was reading it. Yeah. But after the war, I, I don't know if there's any more uh war stories that that jumped out at you, but uh, I was going to move on. Yeah, we can move on. Yeah. Uh, so prior to the war, uh, one of the things Jack Kirby was doing was he was doing well enough where uh, he mentions that he was able to start his own like comic book company or publishing company. I, I don't know what the official term is, but he, he was basically able to make comic books on his own term and they were doing pretty well. You know, after the war, he came back and, uh, you know, they continued to do that. And I think uh, they mentioned that, you know, they were kind of in high spirits and uh, they were doing well for themselves until the Comics Code Authority situation kicks in. And what ends up happening is, uh, yeah, just that, that he... Uh, I. So, you know, to give a little bit of context, the the whole Comics Code Authority thing uh, happened because um, a psychologist wrote a book. I forget what his name was. Uh, do you remember? Frederick Wortham? Yeah, Frederick Wortham wrote this book, uh, Seduction of the Innocent, I believe it was called. Mm-hmm. And it was about how the short version is it's about how comics are corrupting our kids. And it got so serious that, you know, Congress even decided to have these hearings where they would discuss it. Um, And even though the government didn't really 
do anything. Uh, like they even said it in the comic. Uh, Jack was saying that the damage had been done. Uh, the parents who buy these comics were now fearful that these comics would do harm to their kids. So they were forced to, you know, create this comics code uh, where they would self-regulate or regulate their works. And as a result, a bunch of comic book companies ended up closing. And I believe Jax was one of them. Am I remembering that right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Like it, I think the cumulative effect of superhero comics not really being in fashion anymore, as well as, uh, you know, the the Wortham hearings and uh, the Comics Code Authority debacle, like all these things eventually just weighed him down. And at that point, uh, yeah, that that's the point where we come to the story where he ends up looking for work to uh he ends up you know trying to look for work so that he can continue to provide for his family i forget if he tries to go to dc first does he do you remember uh man i i can't remember exactly i I thought that after uh that happened he went to went to see stan lee like that yeah, pretty sure, I, like yeah. what happened was he, it, it didn't work out uh, on his own, and and then uh-huh. uh, he maybe he had a stop before going to Stanley. Uh, yeah, my timeline is a little mixed up. I'd I'd have to like go back and read yeah, through yeah. it again. Well, okay, I mean, ultimately he ends up going back to Stanley. You know, once his options sort of run out, and actually, I'm thinking about it. I I do think he he goes to DC for a little while, but uh, he he sort of has a issue with them regarding his page rate, something to that effect. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to go back and double check. But what ends up happening is after all that, after everything that he did, uh, once he's expended all his options, he goes to see Stan Lee. And it's at this point where we, this was a story that I heard in the uh, Stanley biography, but it's interesting to see it being played out in, in Jack Kirby's uh, memoir here, uh, or biography here. But it's the scene where Jack goes to see Stan, and Stan is just in dire straits, just kind of, the way that he describes it is Stan is, sobbing into his hand you know and yep. uh it just feels like marvel or i don't even know if they're marvel yet at this point they're, i think there's might still be timely i don't know but you know whatever the company was at the time was just in the middle of folding you know mm-hmm. and uh when stan goes uh when jack goes there he's he's sort of invigorated uh and and you know just due to the circumstances he he tells stan like if we're gonna go out let's go out big like let's just throw everything at the wall and you know just make this happen you know if you hire me we'll just do everything we can to try to save the company and that's what stan does you know Mm -hmm. uh he Mm -hmm. he he takes jack back and you know 
little did we know that you know that one act would be the thing that would just jumpstart the entire Silver Age of comics. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I guess technically one could argue that the Silver Age of comics began when Barry Allen came on the scene, but I feel like at this point in time, Fantastic Four number one stands out as like a pretty critical point just because that's the birth of the Marvel universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely one of the milestones. How about that? Definitely a milestone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see though, uh, how, how this all plays out. Cause Again, the way that Stan describes it, like it's it's a thing where they work together, and uh, you know the you know Stan just kind of gleans different things from his life and and makes this happen. But it, but he conveniently leaves out the fact that Jack Kirby a lot of the times ends up integrating a lot of the things a lot of the elements that he was picking up from what he was seeing in uh the news in his daily life as well as from movies and and television you know Mm -hmm. and again that's where a lot of the the debate comes in i was gonna say the one interesting thing about the comic at this point is that at at this point in the comic up to this point, we only see it through Jack Kirby's uh, voice. And there's a couple of pages here where it switches to Stan, actually. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's pretty interesting. And and it's a, it's a thing where, in terms of, like, an observation, it's it was interesting to me to see their treatment of Stan in this because even though I'm aware of just the friction between these two. And as you mentioned before, Shioli's pretty much, it's fair to say that Shioli's pretty solidly in the Kirby camp. He still treats Stan decently here, or or at the very least better than I thought he would have, you know? Um, Yeah, switching perspectives there gives the reader a chance to see things from you know stan lee's point of view so it kind of uh adds a little bit of fairness to the biography but that's the thing like stan at this point in his life isn't the version of stan lee that we know he's not you know the The guy he's not the character he of stan lee he's still a person for for better lack of a term you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um he, he's not the showman i guess um but the way the dialogue that they give him he, he sounds almost reasonable you know yeah yeah um it's it's one of the rare instances in the book when we switch perspectives the other point i can think of is earlier when we're first introduced to Roz and we have uh her point of view of how she and jack first met 
And those those two instances are, I think, the only points in the entire biography when the first person uh, is written from the point of view of another person besides Jack Kirby. I think it's kind of strange to only do it those two times. Because on one level, I would I want to say that if if she only had kept it consistent the whole way through, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. it would have been smoother and, and less jarring to go into somebody's head. Yeah. But on the other hand, going into other people's heads does add extra layer of depth because you're getting multiple points of view mm-hmm. and. It is a little bit more fair, uh, a fair yeah. portrayal of another person who, uh, specifically Stan Lee, who played a big role in his prof- yeah. in Kirby's professional career. Um, but the thing is, is that if you do it those two times with Roz and Stan, how come he doesn't do it in other instances when, when it could be interesting to hear from. Uh, you know, Kirby's other contemporaries or just other people involved in the story. So I, I guess it's it's one of those things where part of me almost wishes that he didn't do that because I think I would have wanted it to be consistent mm, because just mm. having having the the two examples uh, where he does switch perspectives it it doesn't break the biography for me or anything it, it's just one of those quirks where i think I, I would have been fine if he had just kept one perspective the whole way through because switching yeah. perspectives at certain points it it kind of sets up expectations for him to to do it again or to make it like a regular part of the storytelling but it only happens mm. those two times yeah huh interesting I yeah I I don't know if I feel quite the same way um like I think it's an interesting technique uh I don't know uh I I don't know if I feel that it it's something that sets a precedent for me like I could see asking myself uh you know at other points oh why didn't we get to hear you know what uh bob kane had to say or what steve Ditko had to say or whatever right but uh i don't know i i I guess for me i just leave it up to artistic license at that point yeah i think i i just like consistency and it's not that doing it made the story inconsistent or anything like that I, i think it's i think surely is pretty purposeful in his use of uh of switching perspectives uh-huh just because the that moment when kirby goes back to stan lee even though after their initial professional dealings kirby had pretty negative view of stan lee uh-huh. the way we see this encounter from stan lee's perspective this time around i guess the main thing is that it it does make the portrayal a little bit more fair 
you know, because yeah. it yeah. it acknowledges that that Kirby's story about Stan Lee crying when Jack walked into the office, you know, that yeah. that could be an embellishment, you know, and maybe yeah. it's an embellishment that's based in some kind of reality and Stan Lee plays it off as he could have been sad because his friend just died, which is reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things where I live with it and I live <laughs> with the way that he, he tells the story and it, it's, it's yeah. not, it doesn't, it doesn't break the, the immersion of the biography completely. Yeah. I think it it would be it just would have been nice if if uh well again I'm just repeating myself now but I think I just would have yeah. preferred the right, consistency right, right. yeah could I ask you a quick question mm-hmm. um what did you think about seeing that version of Stanley in in those scenes did that did that leave any did you have any thoughts uh, about that like just the way that he looked. <laughs> I think it's nice how Tom Shirley acknowledges how Stanley really looked. Yeah. Back in those days, because yeah, like every, we all know that he was already this, uh, if not old man, uh, you know, like a middle-aged man at that point in time. Yeah. So the way that well, he's depicted in the comic. Yeah is just appropriate for his age right and and yeah it's not until marvel starts taking off when he starts putting on the toupee and becoming this real character the glasses and the mustache <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. i also it's... i also like how jack kirby uh, continues to call him stanley <laughs> yeah that's a good detail and, and that tracks with what i've known about kirby because in in reading old interviews and stuff I feel like he usually did call Stan Lee Stanley, like yeah. his, you know his his real name. He always saw him as a kid. Yeah, exactly. It if you think about it, it's also kind of funny because it's it's a little bit dismissive of the persona or the brand of Stan Lee. You know. Yeah. It's it's yeah. like Kirby's always yeah. saying, just always every time he deals with Stan Lee, he's always reminding him, "I know who you are. I I know, yeah. like what you were like when when you were younger and and where you came from." So. I'm not going to yeah. call you by this I'm name. I'm not playing your game. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, that scene jumps out at me because I, I remember reading it at the time, and then you just kind of see this older, baldish, like middle ma- middle-aged dude who, who could have just been like an accountant or something, you know? And I remember coming to that scene and reading it, and I had to stop and like go back to the beginning and read it again just to make sure that that was Stanley that I was looking at, <laughs> you know? Because at this point in our lives, we all have this idea of what Stanley looks like, and to see him this way, like I I don't really I I think as far back as I can remember, that's how he's looked to me. Even even when I see old pictures of him, so I don't really have an idea of what he looked like before he cultivated this persona for himself you know so mm, see I, I think that's because 
when we when we went over True Believer last week, you had the audio book, so you didn't get to see the photos. Yeah, yeah. That so yeah, I was the, listening to everything. Yeah, the so. the physical copy had a you know how a lot of uh, nonfiction books have this middle section with a bunch of photos. So yeah, there were pictures of Stan Lee the way that he looked uh, before he put on the persona. Okay, okay, okay. So yeah, that was so that was kind of a, a uh, I guess shock to me. Like <laughs> it it was definitely something that made me stop reading to in, in the moment just so that I could process and ponder and give extra attention to what it was <laughs> yeah. that I was looking at, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, this middle-aged accountant is Stan Lee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I also found the the section that I was referring to in the beginning, and uh, and yeah, so prior to him going to 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 marvel he did work at dc for a little while where he worked with someone by the name of jack schiff and what was going on was essentially that he was paying out of pocket for all of his materials and uh i think the people that he was relying on to do their work uh to to give him his pages were or you know give him his scripts were taking too long to to get done so he took it upon himself to, you know, add little uh, plots or add little bits of dialogue, but he wasn't getting paid extra. And in fact, you know, money was still going to those writers, even though he was getting page rate and all that. And then on top of that, Jack Schiff was basically squeezing him uh, by charging him a finder's fee, you know, for for helping him, quote unquote, get work, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you do you remember that scene? Mhm. Yeah. yeah. I don't ha- necessarily have too much else to comment about it, but I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was after this friction that he was having. Oh, and at this point, I think what ends up happening is uh he he had like a syndicated comic strip, but because of his friction with Jack Schiff and the people at DC, I think they they sued him once he was black once he left DC, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. So that did happen before he went back to Stanley and Marvel. Yeah. So, you know, they the way that the comic portrays it, it was basically, and you know what? I do believe I I'll, I'll take the comics word on this because I do believe that even back then the corporation of disney uh, of dc would have been that petty you know definitely definitely yeah but essentially once they decided that jack kirby wasn't going to play ball and he wasn't going to you know pay his finders fees and wasn't going to work for him they sued him and uh you know saying that some uh i forget what the exact uh the exact conditions of the case were but I want to say that it was something along the lines of, you know, it was an ownership issue of, of certain uh, properties, and the courts decided to side with DC on that. And as a result, he he had this syndicated comic strip that was running, uh, and that was providing him money. But because of the case, he had to shut it down. And at this point, he had nothing. And that's when mm-hmm. he went to Marvel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's fun listening to these stories in in this period where he's working with Stan. It's kind of it's kind of the sweet honeymoon period before you know things get bad. You know, yeah. for the between the two of them, but it, it's just Jack talks about you know all of the different ideas that he has, just everything that he just puts out there. The, the idea of the Hulk, how they couldn't do a monster comic because of the, uh, the comics code authority, because monster comics were the thing that got comic books in trouble. So they had to find ways to incorporate some element of superheroes into everything so that they could justify, uh, their existence as superhero comics and not, crime comics or not monster comics you know exactly <laughs> yeah so it's a funny workaround it is it is but it it's a it's a great thing that worked out for us because we wouldn't have had the hulk if it wasn't for that right yeah so you know they they saw they wanted to do something that was similar to frankenstein or dr jekyll and mr hyde and what they came up with was the hulk and you know they wink wink made him a superhero mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so that he wasn't a monster he wasn't out there being chased by villagers with with pitchforks and murdering entire villages he he's a superhero <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah and uh during this time we would also see jack really delve into one of his pet themes that we would see recur uh into into his career more and more as his career progressed but at this point he 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 started taking a lot of or he started reading a lot about mythologies and he he decides that he wants to implement that into his comics and he creates Thor, you know, that's that's mm-hmm. his first attempt at uh, building mythologies into uh, comic book form, and that's that's the first time that we see Thor. And you well, know, the interesting for us, thing is that yeah. uh, even before Marvel, in his earlier comic book work, he he drew some stories featuring the mythological Thor character or a version of the mythological yeah. thor so yeah, clearly yeah. it's it's been stuff that's always uh left an imprint on his mind you know like it's stuff that he's always been fascinated by and th- yeah there are scenes throughout the book where you see him looking at uh, old science fiction books or even books of mythology to get inspiration to for his stories yeah 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 um yeah, we he he mentioned uh, yeah that that's something that he would do quite a bit actually is that at his at the height of his creativity he was just producing all kinds of ideas you know and when things weren't uh, accepted or or taken seriously at one particular place he would just put it in a file or folder somewhere and sit on it until he had an opportunity to finish it back out. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's, 
how we end up seeing a lot of the things uh, that he would eventually produce at some point. It's Yeah, he just had a bunch of ideas and not enough outlets for his ideas, so he would stockpile yeah. them, essentially, and then he'd get to a point where he needed to you know, introduce something new. So he would just go to his, his treasure chest in his imagination or uh-huh, maybe uh-huh. even like his old sketches and stuff to see what he could repurpose and, and reuse yeah. and refine. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just just limitless imagination and creativity is basically how we could describe him. You know, like he just yeah. had so many ideas and concepts in his mind and not enough time to put them out there or not enough uh nobody that would take a chance on it (laughs) yeah exactly exactly um yeah like i do feel like that's a thing that we see over and over again too is just reading this book it really leaves me with this feeling that it almost it just leaves me with this feeling that if they'd only just let him do what he wanted, we would have gotten. Imagine what it could have, what we could have had as a result, right? Yeah. It just so much of the biography talks about how he would bring his work to other places, and people would either reject it or they would tinker with it, and you know, just just mess with him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no real other way to describe it, and it's 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 tough to read. It's frustrating. It's super frustrating to read, you know, mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. for especially for a, a creator as imaginative and as talented as he was. It it just feels like again, if we could create this time machine and bring him back now today to the current time. And if they just, like, allowed him to do his work, I don't know if it would be any better, quite frankly. Like, I don't know that they would give him the range to do it, but part of me would want to believe that they would just because he's such a a, a known quantity and such a proven talent at this point. But You've got more faith in humanity than I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of the interesting things that he mentioned about his Thor was that he fashioned Thor and Loki after Larry Lieber and Stan Lee. Yeah. That was kind of a funny thought. (laughs) Because, you know, Larry was this noble dude, whereas... Honest person. Yeah, an honest, noble guy. Whereas Loki was a conniving... Uh, huckster, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like Stan Lee. <laughs> yeah, it just says a lot about. It, just it says, says a lot, lot about, about how Kirby viewed Stan Lee. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then after that, uh, we we get stories about you know his creation of Iron Man and uh, his creation of the X Men and uh, just you know th- this was the. This was a, like I mentioned, it was a, a honeymoon period for them, but... Um, the thing about the about Iron Man is kind of interesting, too, because 
reading this book, it makes you kind of think that he was solely responsible for Iron Man. But I think he primarily, you know, designed the the cover or designed the the character and then did the cover. But but uh, Don Heck was the f- person who kind of fleshed it out in the actual right. comic, you know, and Larry Lieber wrote that uh, Tales of Suspense issue that Iron Man first appeared in. So it, it, it that one was probably more of a collaborative effort to some degree, or I guess you could say that that uh like all all of them and Stan Lee could have been considered or could are the co-creators of the character Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's just I guess it's just the the nature of memory and and history, right? Like again, even though Jack Kirby is the I guess the 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 point of view character that we're taking it's it's interesting that you mentioned that, right? Yeah, that, cause like that's another point where obviously Shioli's the one who's telling the story, right? So he Yeah. Like this that was that could have been a point where if he had chosen, he could have maybe shown the point of view of Larry Lieber or Don Heck or whatever, you know, just the way that uh we were talking about showing Stan Lee's point of view in that earlier scene mm-hmm. just to get mm-hmm. a different side of that story. But uh for for it to come off as as though Kirby was the sole creator, that, that yeah. just feels a little bit either like I guess generously speaking, I would just say that's a simplistic way to kind of brush over history. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. uh if 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 i were being more critical i guess i could say that some of this it, it doesn't it doesn't make jack kirby in this comic look good you know yeah yeah because yeah yeah because because like so much of so much of his story is about him demanding his just and due credit exactly. for the things that exactly. he co-created and, and then for him to go and do this to someone yeah. is not a good look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but that's the other thing. I'm not sure if that's... I'm not convinced that's the impression that we're supposed to get because it it doesn't feel like that's what the tone is going for. It, it truly does feel like Tom Shirley was just kind of speeding through that yeah, little thing. Yeah, and yeah. it was just a detail that he wasn't too concerned about. Yeah, I mean... I guess at worst you could say that it was an oversight, but but I don't know what Tom Scioli was going through in his mind. I don't know what his real intentions were. Knowing what I know of him and, you know, guys like Piscor and Jim Rugg, I, I presume that there's, you know, some commitment to authenticity and the truth or that they try, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they ain't comic dummies. They know their stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know why that particular detail was left out. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. 
I don't believe in my heart of hearts that he did that as a means of undermining, uh, you know, Larry Lieber or Don Heck. Yeah, and, I don't think there was anything malicious about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I really do think that it, it makes sense to believe that he's just expediting the story, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but as as time goes on, um, you know, Jack Kirby creates a, a lot of the 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 characters that would go on to be to 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 build the Marvel universe. You know, we see the Fantastic Four, and we see like the Avengers. He he begins to roll out things like the Inhumans and it's uh you know it's it's just a situation where as things get bigger personalities begin to clash and you know uh, stan stan eventually begins to claim credit for these things uh, for these characters and uh they begin to have creative differences and you know that's that's just kind of the way of it mm-hmm. uh it's 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 a pretty slow burn on his resentment is what i'd say yeah you know and over time uh, over time uh i think the other thing that com- compounds that resentment is as the comics start to get more successful not only in comics but they start doing you know little animated cartoons and and products and stuff jack kirby realizes that he's not getting paid for any of that you know and it's it's uh just another reminder that it's a harsh business and yeah he's not able to number one get the credit that he was due but secondly he wasn't getting paid for all the stuff that the company was making Based on, on top his of his art. labor, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and there's just something unjust about it. Yeah, he, I think in the comic they even show a couple of scenes where promises were made, but promises weren't kept. You know, where yeah. they would tell him that, oh yeah, you you'll get everything that's coming to you, and he just wouldn't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there wasn't yeah. anything concrete you know signed on a document it was just like people yeah people telling him or making i don't even know if they shook hands or whatever but it just wasn't anything legally binding you know yeah yeah um one of the stories that they mentioned is eventually eventually they tell the story of the saga of galactus you know one of the most Mm -hmm. well-known fantastic four stories of all time and uh you know we see jack kirby incorporate elements that were his pet elements going way back so he the way he envisioned galactus as being this just foreboding destructive force of nature and how he viewed silver surfer as a herald as as an angel you know Mm-hmm. You could see all that stuff 
the the almost biblical roots of all of that stuff uh um in his work and that that just becomes this huge uh just a huge thing for marvel comics uh and, and you know it, to the point where they 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 begin to yeah, it, yeah. Suffice it to say, it becomes huge for Marvel Comics, and he, he's a, uh, you know, he's he's building his career with this, and uh, one of the the main points of friction between the two of them comes when uh, Stan Lee also begins to kind of flex his muscle on Silver Surfer because he feels that. I, like I, I, I think you mentioned this before, Drew, but he, mm-hmm. Stan Lee, always felt that he had a personal affinity to the Silver Surfer character. Yeah. So. Yeah, and at one point, uh, Stan decides to write a Silver Surfer ongoing comic without Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. and it's just another, like, to to Kirby, it was another insult that was just being put heaped on in this pile of insults you know yeah because if if you think about it silver surfer is a character that although i think at times both lee and kirby were credited for his creation i think Uh it you could actually make a fair case uh make a fair argument that jack kirby was the sole originator and creator of the silver surfer because uh story goes that when when they uh, were doing the galactus trilogy stan lee didn't include or discuss the silver surfer with him when they were plotting out the story and then when yeah. kirby brought out the pages and showed it to him stan lee was like who is this guy on the surfboard <laughs> and you know like he didn't he wasn't the one stan lee wasn't the one who described the idea of the silver surfer to jack kirby you know that was just a character jack kirby decided made sense because again like you were saying galactus is this uh godlike being and he has his own herald so it's there's there's a logic to that and and that that was the logic that jack kirby brought into the story to create yeah. this fantastical character so yeah it, i think it would probably make more sense to simply credit Kirby as the creator of Silver Surfer. But then, you know, at the end of the end of this biography, you get those little scenes about stuff that happened after Kirby died. And when we were growing up in the nineties, there was a Silver Surfer cartoon. Yeah. (laughs) And you see it in this book, it's played out where it there's in the credits of the cartoon it says silver surfer created by jack kirby and stan lee and then you cut to a panel of stan lee on the phone saying hey why isn't my name first and then later yeah. on you see it says stan lee created by stan lee and jack kirby yeah <laughs> it's just so petty yeah 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 well but that's that incident along with a uh, quite a few others I, I think along with everything else it's it's safe to say would would be the thing that 
leads Jack Kirby to come to the decision to no longer give Marvel any new material. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a scene in the comic where he tells himself, that's it. I'm not going to give them anything new. I'm just going to save my best ideas for myself, you know? Yeah. But yeah. even he admits that over time he starts getting bored and he decides he, he just can't help himself, you know, that his his creativity wants to, to stretch its – he just wants to stretch his uh, creative wings and to do what he wants to do. And mm-hmm. even though there are scenes of his wife telling him, you know, not to – not to share these things with uh, with the higher ups, with the executives. He still does this because, you know, th- th- it's just a testament to the the creative spirit of the man. Yeah. His his creative instinct overpowered common sense at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a few other stories here about him meeting some other young uh, artist at this point. He he meets Jim Steranko, and. This is a guy who who comes onto the scene and does some crazy artwork too in his own right. And but this interaction between him and and Kirby is always left an impression on him, you know, in a, in so much of a way that he creates this character, Mister Miracle, and uh, it's pretty much based on Jim Steranko because. Jim Stranko regales him with these stories of uh, how he's an escape artist and how he had to, uh, in order to be better than all these other escape artists, he had to create his own tools, constantly challenge himself to become a better escape artist. Mm -hmm. And he just took that idea and decided to create this new character out of it. But it ended up being one of the ideas that would be in his treasure trove because he just didn't want to share it with Marvel. He didn't really want. He didn't want to share. Well, okay. One of the one of the stories I remember was he wanted to do a story, a big epic story with Thor that would be Ragnarok, the death of the gods, and the introduction of the new gods. And that was the. I think that was the example where he couldn't help himself but to try to introduce the ideas that he wanted to play with, even though he had told himself. Not to, right? Yeah. I mean, when he did go to, when he ended up going to DC, the beginning of the New Gods story does begin with the death of the old gods. Yeah. 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 So he did get to use that idea. Yeah. I mean, he, it obviously couldn't be blatantly like Marvel's as Guardians, but, you know, that's the implication. Yeah. It just goes to show the foolishness on their part for not hearing him out, for just being so rigid in their ways that they that they lost an opportunity on this, you know? All these years later, uh, as, as much as I detest the Snyder Cut, we're seeing <laughs> right now that, you know, these fanboys are just frothing at the mouth at the idea of dark side at the idea of you know apocalypse and uh you know his 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 generals all his characters and even the idea of you know the source wall and the new gods like they're just eating this stuff up right now and And these are horrible interpretations of the fourth (laughs) world (laughs) 
they're uh they're a warped photocopy of the original idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's it's like somebody not only took a warped photocopy but it's like playing telephone you know except instead of having a photocopier you just have like a series of successively worse artists keep on drawing the same thing until you get to Zack snyder yeah exactly exactly so i hope they enjoy their crap <laughs> They definitely enjoyed their crap. Yeah. But, you know, again, like, if if they had, if Marvel had just heard out Jack Kirby, they, not only would they have all the stuff that they already have, they would have all this stuff too, you know? Mm-hmm. But they just, they just didn't treat, ever treat the man right. They just didn't give him the freedom to do what he wanted to do. They were fools, yeah, and man. They just, yeah, they were fools, and they just took advantage of him. And it's interesting. Uh, one of the the panels that I remember, um, you know, with all this stuff happening to him, it it almost sounds like he's this perfect Randian character, Ayn Rand, right? Like, he he's sort of in the mold of that kind of objectivist, super, uh, uh, objectivist hero, right? But there's this one bit here where he talks about how he would talk with Steve Ditko, and over the years, Ditko had become like a, a huge fan of Ayn Rand and her objectivist philosophy, mm-hmm. and he just didn't agree with that. So at at one point, he begins to tell stories that that uplift, you know, stories that are contradictory to that worldview. Yeah. You know, that's that that was such an interesting detail for them to put in when I saw that. I was like, huh, like. In the position that he's in, he could have very easily. Told himself and and here's where like the objectivist objectivist uh, philosophy sort of plays in. But the entire I think one of the fundamental ideas behind objectivism is this idea that each of us as individuals are only doing our best and everyone else is in hindrance to us doing and being our best, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, being the best versions of ourselves. That's so it's almost this and this antagonistic slash hostile look at society that says, uh, everyone is an obstacle to me being the best version of myself. (laughs) essentially but and and in jack kirby's case there's you could make that kind of an argument for him because he could have been doing so much more and so much better if all these people just didn't stand in his way and even though that's the case he still it was still a philosophy it was still a philosophy that he did not feel was true and that he felt inclined to speak out against because or not speak out against but to to put on paper um you know his personal worldview about that contradicts that that outlook you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah kirby uh kirby's a cool dude he's a cool dude 
Yeah. I mean, even before reading this comic, I always felt more favorably towards him than a lot of other, uh, you know, older creators. Yeah. He's, he always seemed like you never hear anybody say anything negative about Kirby. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, compare him to someone like Bob Kane, right? <laughs> yeah. Or that guy's a dingleberry. Yeah. Or or again, you know, the Stan Lee comparison makes sense because there's there's controversy around him, and yet you don't really hear too many, if any, negative things about Jack Kirby. Yeah. Yeah. He. I don't, well, okay, so it, it always felt like his humility just made him this unassuming kind of fellow, but in his actions, you could see that he was a decent and good guy, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that speaks substantially more volume than what someone has to say about themselves, you know? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. It also reminds yeah. me of what you were saying earlier about how his wife Roz was kind of more savvy while he was just trying to create stuff. Because uh, I remember some scenes where uh, after a couple of years at Marvel, and you know, he's she can sense that he's a little bit frustrated or dissatisfied with how they've been treating him. Like there are some scenes where uh, he shows her his ideas and progress that he hasn't brought to marvel yet and she's basically like you should keep those for yourself you, they're not good and they're marvel's not good enough to deserve these ideas yeah. you know yeah 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 or even like just a splash page he's drawing of galactus she's like this is too good for marvel you should keep this one <laughs> yeah it's like wow yeah that that's someone who's really looking out for him it's a great partnership that the two of them have, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, that was that was really smart. Yeah. It's another thing that, uh, or anecdote that I, I enjoyed from this comic was, again, and, and this is, goes back to the idea of Jack Kirby as almost this Forrest Gump-like character, but he talks about how you know, as we read this biography, as his life goes on, there are, there are a lot of scenes that are put into it that are that recall moments in in real life. You know, mm -hmm. and Jack Kirby or uh, Shioli's Jack Kirby talks about how these moments really impacted him and just how he put his emotions into his comics, you know? Mm -hmm. Um there was the you know, the story of Jack Jack Kennedy's assassination and how um you know when when that happened it just you know this was something this was a traumatic event event for the country, but in his way, uh Jack Kirby just felt the pain and just put it into his characters you know mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as he got older and as you know the 60s came to an end and as society 
I guess, became more jaded, those feelings were worked out on the page as well. It, it, Kirby really did have this... He really did use his art and comics as a form of therapy for him, you know, to work himself out. Yeah. Um, I mean, he says himself in, in the comic that every character that he created has a little piece of himself in it. Yeah, yeah. There's this one other story where he talks about how he created this one. I forget which character it was, but the character was blind in one eye or something. And he starts to lose vision in that in that same eye. Oh, yeah. I think that was uh, the novel that he had been working on. And it like stuff like that kept happening and it scared him. So he stopped writing his novel. Yeah. Which is which is really interesting because it reminds me of this Grant Morrison story that he used to tell where he created the Invisibles and he was uh, he modeled one of the main characters in the Invisibles after him. And he, uh, King Mob? Sto- I think that's his name, the bald guy, right? I think so, yeah, yeah. So, in one of the story arcs, King Mab gets, uh, he gets kidnapped, and I think they torture him and they infect him with some sort of, some sort of plague or virus. And shortly after he writes this, like Grant Morrison gets severely ill. <laughs> it's uh it's it's weird to think about you know it is man it definitely is to feel such an affinity for your character that it takes a physical toll on you (laughs) yeah that's uh i don't know what it is just a wild coincidence or just something that science can't explain yet yeah it it might be the power of persuasion too, where you just feel such an affinity that your brain tricks itself into thinking, into embodying these uh, symptoms, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. So towards the end, um, Jack Kirby has had it with uh, Marvel Comics, and when he has a chance to go to DC... Uh, I think up to this point, after all of his legal troubles with DC, he was he didn't really see an opportunity to to go back there. But at this point in time, uh, I forget what happens to the the leadership over at DC. I, I think they either that was quit when or retired. Uh, the guys that he didn't get along with retired. Yeah, and Carmine Infantino became editor in chief. Yeah, yeah, and they, they, they pull him over. You know, <clears throat> Jack Kirby is swayed over to their side, and you know he's. This is his opportunity to take a lot of the ideas that he wanted to do, a lot of the new god ideas, and he believes that he'll finally be able to do it his way. Yeah, and and he decides to make that leap. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but we see that his time at DC really, really isn't all that much better. You know, we reading this, I I had hoped, even though I'm here in the present, 
there's a there was a part of me that was hoping that <laughs> you know it would end differently, but <laughs> it doesn't. It really yeah. doesn't. So he ends up going to DC, and you know, for a while they they give him the chance to. Well, okay, they. I don't think they initially give him the chance, but what what they do is they they make a big show of the fact that Jack Kirby is coming to DC Comics. This is a big get for them, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I think they let start him off with the four books, right? Yeah, well, he starts with Jimmy Olsen first, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, yeah, and the reason that they wanted him on Jimmy Olsen was, I guess they didn't have quite the amount of confidence in him that well, I, I they think told them they, they had? It was because they wanted him doing some kind of Superman comic, but he didn't want to make somebody lose their job, and Jimmy Olsen didn't have a set creative you're team. Right, you're right, you're right, you're right, yeah. Yeah, so you're right. So they decided to put him on Jimmy Olsen, and they were saying that instantly the sales like shot up, right? Yeah, and when he left Jimmy Olsen, got canceled a couple issues later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but along with Jimmy Olsen, eventually he would roll out his New Gods, and he would roll out his... Uh, uh, Forever People and Mr. Forever Miracle. People and Mr. Miracle, exactly. Yeah, and those four books comprised the fourth world. Yeah. Um, yeah, but what we end up seeing is that there's a lot of editorial dictates that come down from DC that just keep messing with his books. And Mm -hmm. it's just as creatively stifling there than it was at Marvel, you know, Uh, maybe Mm -hmm. more so from the sounds of it. But, but what we end up seeing is stuff like they would want him to draw Superman, but they would, he would send his pages in and then they would, change the the face of superman because they, it didn't look they like would tell swan <laughs> yeah they would tell him that we want you to do something different with superman and when he sent the, the the pictures in they would change it because they they were saying it it looks too different from superman yeah you know it's it's just stupid stuff like that and and like changing his work without telling him it's don't it's do that disrespectful man it's churlish. <laughs> it is, man. Very uncouth. <laughs> yeah, there was no couth in that whatsoever. <laughs> I also like how um, there was a little uh, anecdote during this time period when Vince Coletta started inking or con- inked some of his uh, Fourth World stuff, and he wasn't too happy about that. It's yeah. interesting to, to think about uh, because... Coletta had done a lot of his Thor comics, right, but right, I, right. I know a lot of uh, art people. Vince Coletta is one of those controversial inkers that a lot of people have strong feelings about. Like you can't just feel indifferent about him. You you either think he's capable of doing okay work when he's not being a hack, or you just think he's always a hack and just messes up everything yeah. beautiful. But I think this anecdote was about him, so if I'm wrong, please please let me know. But they, the way that they described him makes him sound even more than just a hack. 
they make him sound like he's kind of a slime ball too. Cause oh yeah, totally, totally. At at one point, he begins taking uh ideas, some of the ideas that Jack Kirby has, and somehow they're leaked to Marvel. So yeah, because he was working for both companies, and and yeah. he would take the pages that he was gonna ink Kirby's pages that he was gonna yeah. ink and take them to Marvel and show him what what he was doing. It's like yeah. What the heck, man? There's this one especially uh, relevant story mm-hmm. where Jack Kirby was working on a vampire comic, and then shortly before his version of this vampire came out, Marvel decided to come out with Morbius, the living vampire. Yeah. <laughs> and Kirby's uh, Kirby's Kirby's thought on that was that they just rushed something out real quick just so that they could say that they created this first and make it look like kirby was the one that copied them yeah you know that yeah that totally sucks man yeah and so jack kirby just loses his crap with vince coletta at this point and just fires him on the spot and the thing is there was an anchor that he wanted to work with but they wouldn't let him because the you know the higher ups at dc wouldn't let him because they trusted Vince and they liked Vince, you know? Yeah. So, but this guy ends up screwing him over. Like, There's what a, does that say about their judgment? They're pretty dumb. Yeah. There's a famous quote and I found it. Uh, it's on, it's on Wikipedia, but uh, Mark Evanier uh, was talking about Vince Coletta. And this is, this is what he said about Vince Coletta. In 1970, when Steve Sherman and I met Steve Ditko, he asked us about the new Kirby books that were then about to debut at DC. When we told him that Coletta was handling the inking, he winced and said that he would probably not look at the comics. Back when he was working for Marvel, Ditko said he'd pick up the latest issues in the office and always check the credits before taking the comics home. If he found Coletta's name, especially as Kirby's embellisher, he would make a point of putting the comic back or even in a wastebasket, and he'd make sure Stan <laughs> saw what he was doing and knew the reason why. <laughs> so just he the, was a character, dude. Yeah, the, the disdain <laughs> that he had for Vince Coletta. It, yeah. There's something amusing about that. <laughs> I imagine him being in the office and just waiting for Stan to come by and then just going ah, ah, and then like tossing it in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy, Vince Coletta, would he erase stuff and make his own job easier, you know, like, cause he was known for his speed. Yeah. So yeah. like he would, sometimes he would just turn people into silhouettes or whatever, you know, just to make it easy. Yeah, and I guess that's why editors probably liked him because he was able to get stuff done before deadlines were due. Uh, but as far as the pencilers were concerned, I'm pretty sure most pencilers didn't really respect what he did. Yeah, just made made their work look bad, you know. Yeah, I, I do think there are some people who like what he did on Thor over Jack Kirby's pencils. I've never really read through that run of Thor, so I don't know if that's markedly better than uh, some of his other stuff I've seen. But 
I, I remember looking at if you read those early Jack Kirby DC comics, you can definitely see a difference between how his his work looked when Coletta was inking it and when Mike Royer finally comes on board. You know, it's 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 definitely a lot better with Mike Royer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it just makes me feel justified in not liking the art because he was such a crummy dude. Yeah, so, exactly. If he were consistent. a nice guy, I'd feel bad about hating on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Another anecdote that uh, was shared that that I found pretty interesting was, and this is something we, we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, but during his time at DC, he, he noticed, I, I forget what the context exactly was, but uh, he was, I, th- I believe he was having, no, okay, I believe he, uh, you know, Shioli's uh, Jack Kirby was making an observation about how new number ones were selling mm-hmm. really well. So as a result, that's why they were constantly canceling his books and putting him on new number ones, yeah. you know? Time is a flat circle, dude. Yeah. Com- the comics industry has not learned a thing. <laughs> <laughs> they were doing this in... what? When was this? Was this the 70s? At yeah. This point? The 70s. Yeah, they were doing this in the 70s, and it's only gotten worse now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so pathetic. Yeah, but this, this was stuff that directly affected uh, Jack Kirby, though, because... He had all these ideas that he wanted to do, and he just wasn't able to do them because at any point his book could be canceled. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they said, hey, we're going to give you a chance to do a new number one, what what other ideas do you have? It's not it's not really a good faith uh, invitation on their part, because it's really just an opportunity for them to pop out a new number one and get a bunch of sales for that. Yeah, there was no real chance that he could fully develop a lengthy storyline the way that he'd want to. Yeah, which is especially sad because his new God story, you know, he he really had this fully flushed out idea of doing this epic, you know, with Mm -hmm. these characters. And... Mm -hmm. And and at the point in the book where when the comics finally get canceled, you just see on his face he's just devastated. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And this is him just giving DC his best, just throwing his his best ideas and his best work out there, only to have them shut it down. And it it takes this massive toll on him. Uh, he mm-hmm. he talks about how he gives them the demon after that. He gives them Omac, the one man army car core, and Kamandi. Kamandi. Then they start putting him on these other books. Uh, you know they they put him on as guest artist for like the losers and yeah. That that it's, was actually there was a funny comment there. Uh, I'm looking at it on page 161. Uh, it's it's when he he uh, gets put on the losers, or when they asked him to be on the losers. 
the narration says, with so many of my books canceled, they needed to find work for me to do to fulfill my quota. I got assigned to other people's books. Bob Kaniger never liked me or my work. They asked me to take over his book, The Losers. I hated the name. DC's <laughs> culture was so negative. The Losers, <laughs> Inferior Five, Dead Man. Uh, it's true, though, when you think about it. I never thought about that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a funny observation. <laughs> it is, man. Yeah. But yeah, it's at that point uh, where he pretty soon after that, he ended up uh, going back to to Marvel. Yeah, he goes back to Marvel and it's at this point. Again, they make him promises about how he can do things his way and, uh, you know, he'll have freedom to do comics the way he wants. And, you know, just basically a lot of sweet talk. And mm -hmm. there's a scene a where he uh, meets with Roy Thomas in 1974 at San Diego Comic-Con and says, Roy, I'd like to come back to Marvel. And then Roy Thomas says, I'll be honest with you, Jack. He said some unkind things about me. And Kirby's like, what? When? And then Roy Thomas says, house Roy. And he's like, oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Roy Thomas then says, it's not a big deal. I don't mind it so much, but Stan has still heard about Funky Flashman. He felt it was mean-spirited. <laughs> yeah. We talked about this in in the last uh, in the last episode of the podcast where, from Stan's perfect perspective, this was, or at least from Roy Thomas's perspective or re recollection of how Stan reacted to it, it, it was something that hurt him you know yeah 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 but it's interesting again it's interesting to see it here uh depicted on the page because there's similar enough where it's fair to say that yeah that probably happened the way it happened <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. yeah um yeah so you know, Jack Kirby eventually makes his way back to Marvel and, you know, it's it's a big deal for them. And they make it sound like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, the team, are getting back together. Um, you know, it's... It's it's the return it's of the king. Yeah. It's the return of the king, exactly, exactly. And it's at this point that he decides that he wants to do his eternal story. And that's... It's a pretty interesting... Uh, series of events that happens there because at this point he, he wants to do his eternal story he wants to do it his way and after working in comics for as long as he's he's worked with them and uh, experiencing the experiences that he's had he really doesn't want to do comics that tie into the Marvel stuff you know into the the larger shared universe he wants to be left alone to do his own thing exactly and he exactly. wants to write his own comics too yeah he's tired of having to conform his stories to editorial edicts or or stuff that has to do again you know just if if we're just looking at comics or at history as a flat circle where things are just happening again we're seeing that stuff now where you know 
there there aren't really any series that are in existence that exist in a vacuum. Everything mm-hmm. has to have some sort of tie-in or or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jack Kirby tries his best to tell the story of the Eternals uh, in isolation to the rest of the Marvel Universe, but they just keep pushing him on this. And he he tries to throw them a bone. He he puts the Hulk in, but it's a robot Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. Just just he 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 puts in random shield agents just to be just to tell them, see, shield exists in this world. What more do you need? <laughs> exactly. It's the Marvel universe. Yeah. Um another uh thing that happens is that because Jack Kirby comes to Marvel and you know he's he's this well-established uh, artist and he's he's this big name. <clears throat> a lot of people want to work with him, so understandably there are a lot of people who are in awe of him, a lot of people who respect him. But in the worst case, uh, in the worst case, there were people that were that were trying to harm his career. Uh, they told the story about how he created, how his comics would have these letters columns and they'd just be full of letters from people that were just talking crap about his comics, you know, just not putting it in a good light. And they'd say things about how he should go back to working with Stan or how they wanted him to work with some of the new young writers. And what Jack Kirby was saying was that some of these writers or some of these letters were either written by some of the writers uh, that were working in Marvel. And if the letters weren't written by them, then uh, the people that were organizing the letters page or the letters columns were, were, handpicking letters that were making uh, the series look bad. And it's at this moment that he does something or where Shioli does something that puts Stanley in a good light, if only for a second. <laughs> and what he does is Jack Kirby says, the only thing that I could do was talk to the one person who came from my era, the one person who would understand, and that was Stan Lee. So he goes to Stan and he tells him about this, this, these letters pages and just how, you know, how would it look for him to have this comic out there, for them to try to promote this comic to sell when it's when the letters pages are just filled with letters from people talking about how I wish this was more like the Fantastic Four in the glory days or something like that, you know? I wish Jack Kirby yeah. would work with more modern younger writers or something like it's it's not a good look it it just looks like the book is mm-hmm. battling against itself it just artificially making it tougher for itself to to shine you know yeah yeah so jack talks to stan and like the letters column issue is resolved with after that but unfortunately Eternals as a comic still doesn't make it. That was my big 
my big takeaway from him coming back to to Marvel this last time. And mm-hmm. it's at this point where, you know, Jack Kirby's body begins to, you know, he begins to notice he's getting older. He's just not as spry as he used to be. The, all those hours sitting at the table begin to affect him, you know? Yeah. Of, and he he begins to move into things like animation. He talks about how his career moves away from comics and he moves into animation. And animation, or the world of animation, treats him with a lot of respect. They, mm-hmm. they revere him, you know? And they pay him well and he gets health insurance yeah you know things that he just wasn't getting from from comics um this period of time is actually pretty good for him even though his his body is in decline he he talks about how um how lucrative this this time period is for him because he gets put on a bunch of different cartoons uh this one particular cartoon he okay for one thing he eventually gets put on the mr t cartoon which is yeah pretty hilarious <laughs> <clears throat> and then one of the other cartoons and this was something that i remember from my past but i i never i don't remember seeing it like actually watching an episode of it but it's called uh turbo teen yeah yeah i remember that too i don't it was a little bit before my time, but I'm pretty sure I I saw at least like reruns of it or something. Yeah, I, I just remember it because it's a really bizarre, really bizarre concept. Yeah, very it's strange about, concept. It's about a teenager who can turn into a car. Yeah, yeah, he's not yeah. a transformer. He's a a human teenager who yeah. <laughs> morphs into like an actual car (laughs) it's pretty gross the even as a kid trying to wrap my head around how that works it 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 just ended up being gross because i couldn't (laughs) help but think about it in terms of wait so how does he poo if he's a car (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that you know dude albert if you could turn into a car i could go inside you i really really don't want that I really don't want that. <laughs> but it's in this period where once he's moved away from comics, he a, a few things happen. One, he it's in this period where he no longer needs the financial stability from Marvel. So he begins to he he begins to ask for his old art back from Marvel, and they coerce him by saying that if he wants his art back, he has to sign away any claim that he has to the creation of any of the any of the Marvel characters. Yeah, that's totally yes. It is. It's just crap to to the point where he can't even tell his grandkids that these were characters that he created. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. At one point, he goes to Toys R Us, and he sees that all these characters, all these toys are being made of these characters, and he's just, you know, he's understandably upset by this. 
his name's not on the box. His he's he doesn't have any. He's not given any recognition for any of this. Um, he, he didn't make any money from all these toys. He definitely didn't make any money from it. You know. Mm-hmm. So and and there's this image of him in Toys R Us telling his grandkids that he made this, and it just seems there's something sad about that to. To be in this position to, you know, imagine telling your grandkids, hey, I created this, but your name's not on it. So, you know, your grandkids are, if they're good kids, they'll believe you. If they're not, (laughs) you know, there's, there's a high likelihood that they're just like, oh, grandpa, he's just, he's just telling a yarn. He's a silly old man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He didn't create you know, the Fantastic Four or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, imagine being the guy that created it and having to feel like you need to convince your own grandkids that this is something that you did. <laughs> yeah, that that's rough. I don't I don't know if that actually happened, but I would be very curious if to, just to hear stories, if that actually did happen to him. Yeah. And then another story they told that was uh, this was this tracks along with what the Stan Lee biography was saying. But, you know, in this early period of time, Marvel was really trying to leverage itself and really trying to get into the movie business. And so. One of the early projects that they made was that Captain America movie and Jack Kirby really fought to have his name put on it. And this was kind of funny, though. When he saw the movie, he saw how bad the movie was. Yeah. That he eventually, that in the comic, he was saying to himself, I should call my lawyer to have them take my name off of this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because because before the movie came out, there were posters that said, based on the character created by Stan Lee. And that's yeah. absolutely false because... Captain America was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Right, so at right. that point, when he saw those posters, he he called his lawyer <laughs> to get his name on the movie. And after he watched it, <laughs> that was a funny reaction. It was. That is, that it is was. a bad movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never watched it in its entirety, but all the clips I've seen of it, I'm I'm pretty confident that I would not enjoy that. Yeah. They were saying that for whatever reason, uh, Red Skull wasn't German. He was an Italian. And then uh, Captain America, you never re- really get to see his costume because he's he's just in a, a trench coat the whole time, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, that's, that's the least of it. But overall, it was just a dumb movie. It was a bad and dumb movie. So, Have you ever watched it, Albert? I actually have a copy somewhere on VHS. Oh, dude, that's a collector's yeah. item. Uh, that implies that there's someone who wants it. <laughs> dude, you all you gotta do is sit on that for another sixty years, and then VHS tapes are gonna be become a fad again. Somebody's gonna really <laughs> want that. Well, let's hope so, because I'm looking forward to selling that to a sucker. Totally, man. <laughs> Some antique collector is going to want that. Yeah. The other thing about the movie that I always thought was funny was I think they got uh, J.D. Salinger's like grandson to be Captain America. 
Really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. I like it's so random. <laughs> that is pretty random. That, I think it's wow. J.D. Salinger. Yeah, it's a famous writer, but I forget. Now Let I've got to look this, this up. I, I'm yeah. like, starring Matt Salinger. Wow. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. There you go. He wrote Catcher in the Rye, right? He was yeah. Salinger was born February 13th, 1960, the son of author J.D. Salinger. Oh, wow. it wasn't even uh, his grandson. It was the son. Yeah. I wonder what their thinking was. <laughs> like, like he's a great literary mind. We could get his son to be in this movie because that'll give us credence. Well, his son has. Uh, I'm looking at his uh, filmography on Wikipedia, and he does have a, a small list of credits. I mean, it's it's modest, but he's got credits, and he's got credits as recent as 2021. Whoa, that's pretty good. He was in The Ice Road, starring Liam Neeson. Man, now I kind of want to watch The Ice Road because I I just assumed that after that movie he didn't have a career, but oh he's, he's been still active, working, man. Yeah, he's still even working. into twenty twenty one. That's a uh, hey Drew. Uh huh. If they do now that we're seeing uh, a multiverse the cinematic universe <laughs> enter the multiverse. <laughs> Do you think there's a chance that we'll see <laughs> Matt Salinger? The Salinger Captain America? Dude, they should totally bring in Matt Salinger <laughs> back as Captain America. He could be old man Cap. Ooh. He's like Ooh. 62 years old right now, dude. He could he could still play it. I am uh I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued by this. Maybe maybe he'll be in the multiverse of madness. <laughs> Because it'll have to be mad if we're going to have a multiverse where that's our version of Captain America. (laughs) We could also have David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. (laughs) Uh, He could be our White Fury. (laughs) Yeah, so Jack Kirby's at this point in his career, of uh, he's actually doing pretty well for himself. He he ends up he talks about the '90s era where a bunch of upstart, hotshot young artists go off on their own and decide to make image comics. You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because it's extreme. That's an electric guitar, if you can't tell. <laughs> but they go off, and, you know, they're, they're yeah, they're the hot shots. They're, they're the best, quote, unquote, best artist of the, the period. So, you know, understandably... Or theoretically, they take a huge chunk of the market share with them. Um, actually, I think that's it's pretty proven that that's what, what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they reach out to Kirby, and, you know, they just express their admiration and respect for him. And they end up doing a comic with him. Uh, Phantom Force. Phantom Force, right. And the thing is... 
the comic does I don't I don't remember like how it does in terms of sales, but what I do remember is they that image comics gives him a pretty hefty payout for for yeah. for it. According to this, it was his biggest paycheck ever. Yeah. Yeah. And he admits that the comic was canceled shortly after, but the the fun oh not funny, but the thing that his character says when he sees the check is comics you know there's money in comics you yeah. know yep like it's it's sad that this one like i'm glad that he got money but it's sad that <laughs> this whole time he wasn't making near close to what what this one comic gave him you yeah. know yeah and he he knows it wasn't his best work yeah but whatever man yeah he, he earned it, it. it he got to that place it, yeah it's a it's a thanks for doing for for all of the years of hard work prior you know mm-hmm. uh yeah and at at one point he even says at this phase in his career he wasn't even drawing anymore because his body just couldn't handle it and it just felt like the less work he did, the more he was getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> Super so, ironic. Yeah. I It does feel, you know, I, I'm glad that he wasn't in a position where he was financially bankrupt towards the end of his life uh, because of because of what other people were doing to him. Like, I'm glad that he was able to get this happy ending. You know, he might not have gotten everything he wanted, but he wasn't destitute, you know? Yeah. Like, I think about Bill Finger and that guy towards the end of his life. It was just a a pretty sad place to be in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the book comes to an end with about three pages, and it's three pages of uh, two, one, two, three, four, five, about 12 panels per page, and they're all snippets of just things that people were saying about him, uh, and also scenes from media, from TV and movies, uh, mm-hmm. and and just it's just a a short re- retrospective of everything that Kirby was doing. The and the legacy of yeah, what and the had, legacy of it all that exactly. he had left. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's here where you see the the one scene uh, from the end of the Superman episode where he says, goodbye, old friend dedicated to the memory of Jack Kirby. Yeah. And then you see the silver surfer and Stanley talking about why his name isn't first. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really just shows you how the things that Kirby created have become these pop culture uh, staples now. Yeah, they've just permeated yeah. so much of general pop culture that uh, 
you know, you can't even avoid them. Yeah. Even if even if you don't watch the movies, you're still probably aware of them, and you've still probably seen commercials and stuff. So. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It it's. I still think that his comics are his true legacy, but you can definitely see how his creations have just infiltrated movies and television. Mm-hmm. It's it's become bigger than him on some level. Mm-hmm. It it's. I don't think he's completely obscure. There are obviously people who know who he is, but mm-hmm. you know, when you compare it to Stan Lee and just what people think they know of him, it's it's dwarfed by comparison. And Yeah. Yeah, if there's any justice in the world, there you know, uh, Jack Kirby's name would be spoken on the lips of the people that go to watch these movies. Mm-hmm. That he he'd get just as much recognition. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and uh, the comic ends with a statement that he he it 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 looks like grainy video footage from an interview with Jack Kirby, but it's just his final statement on everything. And he says, I began to ask myself, everybody else had their gods. Who are our gods? What is the shape of our society in the form of myth and legend? Who are our evil gods? Who are our good ones? I'm a guy who lives with a lot of questions. I say, what's out there? And I try to resolve that, and I never can. I don't think anyone can. We can do better. We want to do better. The character, the characters represent a transcendent feeling that we all have inside us. I haven't got the trappings of the circus, but there in my mind is a very active and bright and colorful place. No matter what kind of characters you create or assume, a little of yourself must remain there. If you look at my characters, you'll find me. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a and it's a poetic way to end the book. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a nice final statement on, on Jack Kirby. It's a it's a nice send-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the book, there's a, a good amount of uh, notes and annotations and a bibliography for all of Shioli's research. So people who are, like, I guess, scholars can verify all the all the stories and, and stuff and, and the sources that he cites. So it's... It's a real serious piece of work, and I definitely recommend it. Yeah, yeah. It's for those of you who want to be or who want to to know the truth and who want to educate yourself on comics history. You can't learn comics history without knowing Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. and I, I I think this book is an excellent way to start. Yeah, totally. One of the things about Jack Kirby is how he had this limitless imagination and really boundless creativity. He was always searching to do something new. 
he didn't want to be stuck doing the same old kind of thing over and over. He was always creating something that hadn't been done before. The conflict is between that will to create, just the the boundless creativity he had. It was always in conflict with his lack of credit and ownership. And I, yeah. I think that's the, you know, the heavy part of his story was just how he had to fight for all the recognition that he was able to obtain. And, uh, you know, even after he, he passed, his heirs were the ones who fought for his rights with the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Gotta remember Jack Kirby, man. He was the king. And I, I think just in terms of what he did with his career in comics, so impressive when you compare it to anybody else, man. He's he's pretty much unmatched in Western mm-hmm. comics. Yeah, yeah. Well, you want to recommend anything that is uh, similar to this or for anyone who would like to read something that's connected to this comic or uh, similar well, to this comic? I guess my recommendations would be pretty similar to last week's recommendations. I mean, if you if you haven't read the uh, Stan Lee biography by Abraham Reisman, check that out. It's called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. We talked about mm-hmm. it last episode, and it's absolutely worth reading. And uh, as I also mentioned last week, another uh, nonfiction prose book is Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, which covers a lot of the stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it covers everything uh, up to like 2012 or so. So a big chunk of that is when Kirby was at Marvel. If you want to read some Kirby comics, I think a good starting point is his fourth world comics. Pretty much any of them, but maybe uh, an easy entry point would just be the New Gods or Mr. Miracle. Uh, in terms of Shioli comics, I say go with Godland or Transformers versus G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are both some great adventure, science fiction, cosmic kind of comics. Yeah. There's also his GoBots, which is uh, lesser known, but I've... I've bought that for a buck and i read it and uh that was a great book you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> he also did a comic called american barbarian which is kind of a like a send-up of commandi or a tribute to commandi in a way so yeah he's a lot of a lot of kirby influenced options from uh, tom scioli any final thoughts albert no i i enjoyed the book and i i recommend that you guys check it out All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters, signing off. Peace. Peace, guys.